All right. Well, I'm glad you guys are having me here now that you guys had to say so in it, but I appreciate you guys welcoming me and so forth. Uh, we, we met Casey and Lorenzo uh, about a year ago. We came out uh, here, me and another pastor, to meet with them as they were getting ready and thinking through starting what is now uh, Collective Church. And so that, that's exciting for us. We love being a part of church plants. Uh, we plant churches ourselves and so forth. And so it's, it's been good. Um, and I know that Casey was looking for a picture to put up of me, and so he found some picture online, which I'm not exactly sure where he found that picture, because I got rid of all social media, which has been absolutely uh, a God thing. I think the Spirit told me and everybody else to do the same. I listened. Um, and so, so, so he found that, which was good, because usually when I go to a place where nobody knows, it's like, this guy's name's Ricardo. Most people are thinking a Latino person, and I'm 100% black. Um, but... But you guys get that, because you guys, when I expected to meet Lorenzo Smith, I was thinking a black guy from Inglewood, but <laughs> not a white guy from Vancouver. So, I mean, it, it happens. But Casey is, yeah, perfect. That's what I thought. Uh, and so, so that... that <laughs> So, so a little bit uh, about myself, which I think would, um, I think, shape even what we're going to talk about tonight. I do think that ministry uh, is something we're all called to as followers of Christ, whether God routes your check through a tech industry or God routes your check in college through your parents still, or God rocks your check through somewhere else. But you're called to be, and we're called to be witnesses of the gospel. And a lot of that is um, God uses and weaves your story to call you to whatever your passions are, right? And your passions are not everybody's passions, but usually our passions, um, biblically, we find it in Scripture. Not everybody jumps in on that, but yet it's something that God shapes you. So let me just, look at myself, like I said, I was actually born in Mississippi. I was, lived there for two years, so I don't remember it at all. Um, we moved to South Central LA. We lived in South Central for a while, and then we moved to the Inland Empire, right? Which, I'm glad I don't live there anymore, but uh, we were there in Pomona, uh, that's where I went to school, and I grew up uh, with in a very, very just eclectic or diverse community. And so when I got married, uh, my buddy Brandon was Indonesian, stood next to me, Josh, who's half Mexican, half white, uh, and then my buddy David, who was Nigerian, another friend, Shorty, or Josh, who, another Josh, <laughs> but short dog is what we call him. <laughs> he, was, he was a Latino, Hispanic guy. Um, and then also my buddy Tinka was Hindu, right? And we had my friend Ryan, we called White Ryan because he, he's white. And... Uh, <laughs> And not like any of us. Most of us, even though ethnically we were different, we, we listened to the same music, we jived all the same things, where Ryan was like a Metallica, Green Day, Blink-182, which was like not us at all, but, but yeah, he was my best man. Um, somehow we were able to just, just click together. And um, none of us at the time, other than my buddy Josh, were walking with the Lord uh, but that was just my friends. That's the friends I grew up with. Even though I left here uh, in 2000, I graduated high school in 2000, moved to Arizona to go play football at ASU, as we talked about. And I met Jesus there at the very end of college. But um, I still, I'm still tight with my friends. Like, even though it's been years, 16 years since I left California, we, we get together, we just, we just jive, we click. Um, and so when I became a Christian, the idea of, of um, a monolithic or a, a culture of a community of people just being the same was, was somewhat foreign to me. And you guys get this growing up in L.A., uh, that there's just so many different types of races, and not just races, ethnicities and cultures, and not even just cultures, just different types of people that I, I begin to think if God's people were going to gather and God's people were going to be together, like wouldn't the church, like the people of God, be the best to be able to display that? Fundamentally because of what we believe about Christ. And yet my experience was not that, right? My experience was not that's what you saw. And I would begin to ask myself why and different questions why. And that's kind of been the journey that I've been on um, since I started walking with Jesus right around 2004, uh, 2005. I was get done playing football. 
And we had a chaplain on the football team who would always talk about Jesus. And, and I'd go to chapel here and there. And um, right when I was getting ready to graduate, I decided that I wanted to hear the gospel. And, um, and for most of you in this room, I understand that not everybody here is a Christian. But those you are, if your non-Christian friend says they want to hear the gospel, you're like, what can I buy you? You want a steak? You want my, right? Like, you want my car? Like, what, do you, what do you want, right? Like, you're looking for, so he was like, yeah, why don't you come over? And he began to share the gospel with me. And I would love to say I believed right then and there, and I gave my life to Jesus. But I didn't. Um, it was actually, um, my mom was at a church here in L.A., and they had a prayer group, and it was a lady in her prayer group, an older woman, who said, you know, I'm sick and tired of praying for your son. Give me his number. And my mom <laughs> gave this woman my number. Um, she calls me, and I'm like, who is this? She tells me her name. I don't know who she is. I'm like, why well, my mom give you your number? But, like, she was this old black lady. You could just hear her voice, like, just, you could just, you can, now you could tell some people pray. I mean, I'm going to pray for you. You're like, no, you're not, but I appreciate you saying that. And then, and then there's some people that are like, I'm going to pray for you. You're like, yes, you know? You could just tell she was a praying woman, and she shared the gospel with me, and, and my eyes opened up to the work of Christ, like in that moment. And I was a mess. Like, I was a mess. Football was my God. I, I got a chance to be captain for a couple years. I was whatever you can think of Arizona State in football, right? And I tell people, I went to ASU as, a, as, a, as, a, as an athlete, not a student athlete, right? Um, I had a .67 GPA my first semester. Right? People are like, whoa, that's really hard to do, by the way. Um, <clears throat> stayed in school, graduated, and education of all things. <laughs> but uh, so I'm like in it deep, and, and the Lord just reached in and, and, and opened my eyes to see the truth of the gospel. And with that, um, began to see um, more people in my, my sphere, my circle, my friend group in college begin to know Jesus, and then even more so now, and it's been an absolute blessing, but... But this desire for us to be reconciled is something that's still real huge for me. And not, not just across racial lines, again, it's just completely an eclectic community. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, so um, I've been married for, it'd be 10 years in July. Like I said, my wife, she was also an athlete in college. She played soccer. Uh, she's from Folsom, so like outside of Sacramento. And um, we met uh, in college. I knew who she was. She knew who I was, but we didn't date. She was a, she was a follower of Christ, and I wasn't. We had one conversation um, on the elevator, like in passing, um, and then we start working at a, I start working at a camp that she was working at, and, and she just was like all over me, and so I started, <laughs> I started, <laughs> no, I was trying to pursue her, and so, and, and so she said yes, and we have two kids, and so I have a picture of our family, so you can see our family, those are my boys, this was us in Seattle this past uh, May, uh, my youngest son right there to the left, that's Eli, this dude's a mess, uh, and then Noah is just a beautiful kid, and then that's Holly, and uh, uh, yeah, so that's my family, so they're back in Arizona. So that's, that's it. And so let me give you a framework, and we're going to go. All right, so I talk fast. I'm not sure if Casey talks fast, but I talk really fast, so you got to keep up. Uh, number two is um, when I say something that's true uh, of the Spirit and what God's doing, I may say amen. Okay, if you agree with it, you would respond by saying Okay, all right, so you guys got that. You did really good then, all right? My, even my own church is always like, we got you, we got you, but they never have my back, right? And so, so uh, we'll see if you guys can do better. Uh, number three is we'll spend the bulk of our time framing the conversation of what we're going at. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter two. So if you have one of the Bibles that, that um, they let you borrow in the back, they don't let you keep, which is weird, um, go ahead and give that back. But hold on to it for now. We're gonna be on page 675. Um, that's where we're going to be at. Looking at chapter 2 of Ephesians, but primarily looking at verses 11 through 22. So the 
bulk of it will be able to build the tension of going like, why does this even matter? Like, why did it matter to the Jewish people? Why did it matter to the Gentiles? Like, and then why does it matter for us today uh, as people, for your sake, who live in LA on the west side? Like, before we can even say, why does it matter to us today? We got to understand, okay, what was the context? Why was this a big deal? And so that's what we'll look at uh, this evening. So would you guys uh, bow your heads, let's pray, let's ask the Spirit to illuminate his word, and we'll, we'll jump into it. God, you are more than gracious. You are more than good. Um, you are with us. You are present. Uh, we don't need to ask you to be here, Lord, because you inhabit this space constantly. Jesus, we ask that we would find the uniqueness of what it means to be hidden in your son, Jesus, that we would enjoy the intimacy of being one with you, and that intimacy will fuel us, God, to be your people. God, I ask that you would remove me, that you would elevate the work and presence of your son, Jesus, and fill us and flood us with your spirit, God, that we may understand your word, Lord, that we may be faithful to the scriptures. Repent, Lord, in areas, Father, that we are not consistent with you, and Lord, we would rest in the finished work of Christ and the grace that's been extended to us. Father, we thank you, we praise you, in Christ's name, amen. I want to start with this quote from MLK Jr., and he says this, men often hate each other because they fear each other, and they fear each other because they don't know each other, They don't know each other because they cannot communicate, and they cannot communicate because they're separated, right? They cannot communicate because they're separated, meaning at some level, people are separated. And what what I'm trying to convince you to see is if you took a reading of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, what you will see in it is not that, that God is on a mission to save individual souls, to live in some a weird place called heaven where we have souls and we're floating around singing worship songs forever, right? Like if you just try to share that to kids, kids will be honest with you. That sucks, right? (laughs) Is there anything else? But instead, what you see from the very beginning is that out of an overflow of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has always existed in community, that out of that overflow, there's creation, And creation in itself, God, at the apex of his creation, he creates our mother Eve and our father Adam. And then Adam and Eve, as you you read the story, they sin against God. And by sinning against God, isn't they just got rid of their ability to do good or to do right things? They lost worship. They lost intimacy. They lost what it was like to be known, fully known, and accepted and, and embraced. Yet, the same passionate, loving father... Son and Spirit, who created them, went on this rescue mission to pursue them. And you see that he so desires to be with us. It's not the other way around. Like God desires to be with us, to dwell with us, and then that we would be with him and dwell with one another. He was able to speak things into existence without electricity, by the way. So he desires for us to be with each other. And so you see this long plan of redemption of God doing that. Um, and so first you see after Adam and Eve sin, there's, 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 there's brokenness and decay in the world. And the story progresses. And then God chooses to enter in through one man, this man named Abraham. And he says through Abraham, he's going to make a family. And then Abraham's going to have a kid. And he's going to have so many more kids. And many of you guys who grew up in church, you sing the song that Father Abraham had many sons. You're one of them, so I'm me, me too. Whatever the song is, right? You get it. And those of you guys are like, I don't know the song. You didn't grow up in church or BBS. Consider yourself blessed. All right, so, so there's, 
there's this big story of Abraham himself and his family and how God sovereignly and graciously is going to work through this family. Well, these people are ethnically Jewish people. And he gives them the law, not to show them how to get to their way to him, but how to live in his loving care. What we see is this great story of redemption in which God himself frees his people who have been enslaved for 400 years under this dictator named Pharaoh. God works through humanity again, as he often does, through a man named Moses and his brother Aaron. He redeems his people. And when he brings them into the wilderness, before they enter the promised land, then he gives law after he does an act of grace and redeeming people. And the law in itself was to reveal this character and how they were to live in his gracious love. And then they find themselves in the promised land, and yet they still continue to listen to the competing narratives around them. And that is they want a king like everybody else. So God gives them the king, and they get King David. And David's a pretty decent king. He's not great. And then there's other kings. And as the kings get progressively worse, God gives prophets to speak to them. And these prophets say many things, but one of the things they give them is warning. If you continue to live outside of God's loving care and covenantal love, that he, in exercising his discipline upon his people and whom he's chosen, that he will raise up another nation to take them out. And that's exactly what happens. And you see the people of God in exile. And during the time of exiles, if you're familiar with the scripture, that's where you meet characters like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? In the church I used to go to, we used to call it Shadrach, Meshach, and One Bad Negro, right? <laughs> you guys can't say that. So, so you, ha- you, you meet these exiles where during the time of exiles, God begins to cure them of their idolatry, this, f- this false worship they have, and then prophets speak again. But this time, prophets begin to speak of this kingdom and of this Messiah and on this day, and will heaven will unite with earth, and that God will be with his people, that the lion will lay with the lamb. Like, they can't even begin to give enough metaphors and pictures of what it's going to be like to be in shalom with God. Well, they get back from exile. They get back to the promised land. They rebuild the temple, but the presence and power of God is not there. And for 400 years, there's silence. And as this silence goes, they begin to reread the scripture, and they begin to imagine what it's going to be like when the king comes. And during this 400-year period, there were these groups that raised up. One were the Pharisees, and you hear about the Pharisees. They were about ethnocentric power. Like, they wanted to be so uniquely Jewish that they tethered themselves to the Torah or the law, and they tethered them, and they, they overemphasized the things that were uniquely Jewish, things like circumcision. And then there were another group who were the Essenes who were very similar to the Pharisees, but yet their, their deal was way more of a spiritual community, and that they wouldn't act against the Roman Empire, which they saw themselves now, but ultimately they would just wait for God to come. And there were other groups that came, there were the Zealots. The Zealots were those who were, like, ready to fight at any moment, Right? Like, we all have friends like that, like the friend that, like, all, I think he's looking at me. He's not looking at you. I think, I think he wants to fight. That's like, he doesn't want to fight. He just wants you to order, right? You know, it's like, <laughs> like there's a, there, 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 we always have a friend like that. That's, that's the zealots. The zealots were, like, always looking to pick a fight because you got to understand, Israel had been... <sighs> worked out today. My back's all ripped. So there's a... <laughs> So there's, there's, they've been bullied. Like it was, if it wasn't the Egyptians, it was the Assyrians. If it wasn't the Assyrians, it was the Babylonians. If it wasn't the Babylonians, it was the Persians. If it wasn't the Persians, it was the Greeks. And now it's the Romans. So like they want to fight. And then there was the rest of the people during that 400 time that were just waiting patiently for a king. But all of them had this in common. The king was going to come. The kingdom was going to come. And when he came, he was going to drive out the other nations. They missed it. 
They thought this whole story, when God had chosen, was a story of race, when it was always a story of grace. It was always a story of his working and how they were supposed to be used to be a light to the nations. That wasn't just something new in the New Testament. They'd always been used. In fact, what we see in the scriptures is that God always had provision for the Gentile, the non-ethnic Jewish man or woman or child, to be included in this covenant community as they would bear witness to the grace and the love and the character of God. Well, then Jesus shows up on the scene, and he says he's the Messiah. There had probably been about 11 Messiahs, false Messiahs had come before Jesus, and about 10 or 11 that were going to come after him. But he comes in and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. You read that in your scriptures in the Gospels. The kingdom of God is at hand. Well, that meant something to them, that it doesn't mean us. We hear it go, yeah, we see it in the scripture, and we like have a verse for it. For them, it was like, this has been our story. Like, we've been waiting on this. And he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn from your ways, and believe upon the gospel. And they're like, all right, let's go. What's the kingdom? And then Jesus shows them that the kingdom is nothing like they thought. Like he's like, finally, he's here. He's going to get rid of the Romans. He's going to beat them up for us. And Jesus is like, no. And he shows that this kingdom is one. What we, 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 you probably heard it said, it's already here because the spirit is here. The kingdom is, was embodied in the life of Christ. And so now there's healing and restoration, but then it's not yet fully because there's still brokenness and decay and murder and so forth. So we have this, this in-between time where we live in what is called the already and not yet. And then he shows his upside-down kingdom, and the Jewish people are like, no, what are you talking about? This is ethnocentrism. It's to be about us. And Jesus is like, no, it's not like that. Like they were looking for like power, and Jesus goes, the power is actually to give it away. And then Jesus starts on this kingdom mission, and he starts, he starts his, his draft, right? First pick in the draft, what does he pick? A fisherman. I'm like, okay. Um, next pick in the draft, a fisherman. Third pick in the draft, a fisherman, right? And if you're in the fantasy football, you're like, dude, this is not good. He's like, he's picking all kickers. This is not, this is not, this is not going to work. Like, Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to establish a kingdom. It's because he doesn't establish the kingdom the way that the religious culture of the day thought it would establish. Neither does he establish a kingdom the way that the ideology of the world around him thought. He brings in something that's completely different, that he ushers in something that's, that's way different, that, that he says the way up is actually the way down. Like, if you want to gain your life, then lose it for my sake. But if you want a sure way to lose your life, then try to gain it by the ways of this culture and by the ways of this world. He does miracles constantly, constantly. And then finally, the religious people come, all right, show us a miracle. He goes, nah, no miracles today. Like he just absolutely frustrates them to the point that they crucify him. And before he crucified him, Jesus constantly said things like, you know that enemy that you've been waiting for the Messiah to come to beat up? I want you to love them. You know, they probably thought in that day, you, you know, as a, as a Jewish person, a Roman, a Roman soldier could come to you and say, hey, carry my bags for a mile. And they probably thought when the Messiah comes, he's going to stop this. And Jesus goes, yeah, don't carry it a mile. Carry it too that ultimately everything that he's called is radically upside down, and he starts this new community. And this community is made up, at first it was Jewish people to be displayed into the world. Well, as you progress in that story, um, Jesus is crucified, he's raised, the spirit is poured out upon the church, you read about this in Acts, it's a beautiful picture, and there's this absolutely ethnocentric maniac named Saul. And Saul is persecuting the church, and he thinks he's doing it for all the religious reasons. And then Jesus shows up to him and absolutely shatters him. The gospel just takes him down. 
and his name is changed from Saul to Paul, and then he finds himself in a church plant of all places. He's in Antioch. And this church, this church context in Antioch, as you read in Acts 11 and even 13, it's made up of people from all different nations. And it says that's where Paul is actually on this leadership team. And then when God sends him out, he sends him not to Jewish people, but he actually sends him to the Hellenists or the Greek speaking or everybody else that's not Jew. And I would argue at the heart of the New Testament and even more so at Pauline or the Apostle Paul's writings, the heart of it is how does the gospel bring Jews and Gentiles together to worship in all areas of life centering on the person and work of Christ? That we read these letters of Paul, whether it be Romans as these huge theological treaties and we break them down. What does predestination mean? I don't know. And what does this mean? And what is this? What is Paul doing? And so you get to Ephesians, where we're at this evening. And in Ephesians, Paul is in this church that he'd already been to. You can go back and read in Ephesians chapter 19 that he started this church with a few disciples. And the Lord began to bring in the gospel with power that it was absolutely radically turning the world upside down as God does. And not just their faith with God, but ultimately with one another. That people were looking at the way in which they were making money and going, I can't make money. I can't call myself a follower of Christ and make money this way. So it turned their economic system on its head to the point that there was a riot, right? Like there was a riot. Like that's the sort of change that came. Well, then Paul wrote a letter back to this church. And the letter breaks down in six chapters the way that we have it. But the letter is ultimately saying, how do we continue the mission of God? How do we continue the mission of Jesus? And more particularly, how does the church in Ephesus predominantly non-Jewish people, how do they worship with Jewish people? And how do we send it around the gospel? And so that's what we pick up uh, here um, this evening. Again, page 675 as a frame of going how this was hard for them to be able to worship with one another. So I want to start first here in in, uh, chapter 2 and verse 11. And here's what Paul says. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called circumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, first thing we got to do in verse 11 is there's a therefore. And what I tell our church all the time is whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore, right? Um, so it means he's connecting something that he's saying. I know it's lame, it's ridiculous, but you'll remember it now. And so <laughs> chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is what he's connecting it. And just an overview of that is he starts off by saying, but you were dead in your sins. He's talking about the spiritual reality of every single person. That, that ultimately we are sinners by nature and by choice. The way I like to say it is we are naughty by nature, right? And some of you who grew up in the 90s and grew up good, good hip-hop, you get that. The other you guys are like, I'm going to laugh because somebody else left. So it's fine. So not with that, by nature that we are separated from God. That's not saying that you're not creating the image of God. That's not saying that there's no value and there's no dignity in you. That's not saying that if you don't believe in Jesus, you can't do kind things. No. It's saying that sin has come into this world in such a way that it has absolutely gripped our hearts that we don't naturally reach out for God. But it says this particular God, as he goes forth, he says, everybody's in this situation. Like there are not one people group that's like more sinful than somebody else. We like to think that, right? Um, it's something that for those of you who have kids, you don't have to 
read a book on the nature of sin, right? You have a kid and you go, oh yeah, this stuff's, this stuff's at birth, right? Like, you never have to teach a kid how to say yeah, uh, no. Like, you never have to teach a kid how to say no. You always have to, yes, no, right? Kids are, they're great, they're beautiful, they're just sinners. And so, so, so what you have here is Paul saying, you're separated, all of us, Jew and Gentile, but then he begins to, to, to preach this beautiful thing that if you've been around church, you've, you've heard this. Um, and he says this, verse six, he talks about us being raised up with him, speaking of God, Christ, and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches and his grace and kindness to those of us in Christ. He's speaking of the finality that the man or woman or child that's in Christ, that though you're broken in your own sin and you have your own struggles and I have my own struggles, and though God is progressively making us more and more like his son, that because of the work of Christ already, that we are as good seated in the heaven. Like he's so confident, not in you, in me, to hold out to our Christianity until Christ comes home. But he's so confident in the power of the gospel that if you believed upon the Son of God for your salvation, that it is as good as finished. So, so, so he continues here to say he does this to show off the riches of his grace. Like we have some friends and we have people who like to show off how rich they are and it's annoying, right? Because it's just basically about them. God says, I'm going to show off my riches and it's going to be about his love for us. Because I'm going to show off my riches so this is how much and an extent that I'm to go that you would be with me for all eternity. Well, then he says these words in verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. That, that, that right there, he says, it's just by God's grace. What that means is, Paul starts off with this vertical relationship. He says that you are saved, reconciled with God as is. That he loves you as is, that he accepts you as is, that he redeems you as is. But he never leaves you as is. Meaning if you come into relationship with him, there's something that's going to change. You, you, you can understand that just about the relationships you have. Like, you know how you're around people for a while, like they get on you and you get on them, right? You don't notice it until you go back to people who, have, who haven't seen you for a while. Like when I first went to college, when I first went, I only went once. Uh, <laughs> when I got to college and I was in Arizona for a while and I came back home, my roommates in college were from like New York and Texas and, and all these different places and I picked up all this language. And I remember the girl that I was dating at the time who I thought I was gonna marry didn't work out. Uh, was, um, she's like, why do you say these things? You're so different. I'm like, what do you, what, what? I was like, what's up, son? Like, what are you talking about? You know, my, my roommate from New York was always talking about son, and there was like my shorty, and like, it was like all these words. I was, and it was so ingrained in me. I'm like, what happened? And she was like, there's a culture that I was a part of. Like, you begin to become like the people you're around. And when you're in relationship with Jesus, eventually you're going to begin to look like him. Like, we get on him, and what we get on him is he takes upon our sin. And then what we get, when he gets on us, he gives us this new life in the context of one another to live out on this mission that he started a long time ago with Abraham. Like it's not something new, it's a continuation that has been bought by his blood and given to us by the Spirit. Well then, how do we know that? Because the next verse Paul says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works which God prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship just means poema. It's a Greek word poema that means poem that we are a part of God's art and what he's doing, and he's already prepared this work for us. So what is the work? Well, the therefore comes in in verse 11, which we read. 
And that is, he begins to he say, therefore, to those of you who are not ethnic Jewish people, so probably most of us in this room, we're Gentiles, sorry, guys, we're just pork-eating Gentiles. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision, which you don't know what that is, go ahead and ask somebody later, <laughs> in your D group, or whatever, you got, discipleship groups, or at the neighbor table, why not? That could be a good conversation. <laughs> So by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. Now, what is he saying is he's trying to communicate, you were not a part of this long story. Like, you didn't know it. Like, you, you, like this was going on without you. Like, remember. Like, remember how you came into this story. Like, it was by grace that somebody, namely God, had to go out of their way and welcome you in as is. That someone had to go through a loss or sacrifice to welcome you in. He's trying to remember that. Like, remember that. He goes, just understand that. That you who were called uncircumcised, meaning you were not a part of the loving covenant of God. But he says this, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That picture there is brought near. It literally means to bring someone closer, to an understanding, to what it looks like. That meaning it was no other way in which we know God other through the blood of Christ. Like he's saying culturally, ethnically, that matter, what brought you near was through the blood of Christ. And sometimes we just let that phrase, the blood of Christ, wash over us without understanding the implications that it has. So when I was probably nine, something like that, eight or nine. It's when we first moved from LA to, to the, the school that I moved to uh, out in the, in, the, in the Empire. And at this time, to be honest with you, I'd never been around anyone but black people. Like, my family was all black. <laughs> my neighborhood was all black. The church that we would go to was all black. The school I went to was all black. And I had a Chinese teacher. So I'd never, like, been around like white people, and we showed up to, but like my family, I thought, did a great job at raising us with a very, very strong um, black consciousness. And so I knew about racism and all those things. By the time I was seven, eight, I was very schooled with that. We read a lot of books, um, we just talked about it. And so I knew there were certain words that were extremely offensive to my people. And we were in the third grade, and I was playing basketball against this kid, let's say his name was Steven, because that was his name. And, and we're playing, just me and him, going back and forth. And uh, we start arguing, and he calls me the N-word, right? And most of you guys know what that is. If you don't, again, talk about it in your D group. <laughs> and I just became furious, and I began to lay hands on him in a very unbiblical manner. <laughs> and uh, we get in a fight. We go to the principal office. They're like, we got to call your parents. And I'm like, hopefully they call my dad, because my dad doesn't care <laughs> if I get in a fight over this. If you call my mom, my mom was actually the only Christian in our family, and she was always like trying to love Jesus and stuff. So, so I knew that, that it would probably bother her. And she worked in Watts. And so for her to leave Watts to drive all the way down the 10 freeway, which is never fun, um, to pick me up at school is going to be an issue. And so the principal's like, I'm going to call your mom. I'm like, oh, no, this ain't good. So that's when I start praying, even before I was a Christian, Lord, come soon, preferably <laughs> in the next 45 minutes, right? And um, my mom gets there, and it's me, my mom, and the principal, and the principal begin to explain the story. She goes, this is what Ricardo said happened, but I know Stevie, first of all, she called him Stevie, which bothered me, um, and he would never say anything like that. And I'm like, what? 
She goes, I know his parents. He would never say anything like that. I'm thinking my mom's going to be like, this lady's racist. Let's go home. You're fine. You're never going to go back to the school. Not at all. We came home. My mom disciplined me. We called it whoopings or spankings. I know you, you can't say that anymore or do it anymore, but I did. Um, or it happened to me. And I, was, and I was mad because my mom and dad couldn't be more opposite about this. Like, it was like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Like, <laughs> my dad was like, by any means necessary. <laughs> and my, my mom was like, you know, like, love your neighbor. <laughs> and she sent me down, and I said, but mom, you don't understand. Here's the worst thing you can do. Tell someone who's older and wiser than you that they don't understand, right? Because then they'll tell you a story and just shatter you, right? So my mom, my mom was raised in segregated Mississippi. So here I am in California, in L.A., all of that area going, but Ma, you don't understand. Like, you know, and if you don't know the South, the South ain't as progressive as the West Coast still today, right? So my mom explains his story, and she shares with me, and then she said this. I'll never forget it. When Jesus died, his blood was shed that we may all become one in him. And she goes, and the blood of Jesus has many colors in it. And I never got that. The blood of Jesus has many colors in it that we all may be one. And when I became a Christian, and if you actually trace the lineage of Christ, you see some wild people that get in that blood. You see Rahab, you hear, you hear Moabites like we have in Ruth, you have all these different ethnicities that have gotten to the lineage of Christ's blood. So much to say in some ways that it was always God's idea in his blood to welcome in his multi-ethnic, multicultural church to himself. That on the cross, that Christ himself had me in mind and Stephen in mind. He had West LA and South Bay. <laughs> he had the Valley and the Inland Empire, <laughs> right? That he had the Democrat and the Republic, Republican, and many of us who are like, I don't care, right? That, 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 in his, that in his mind, that part of his plan was not that we would be so identified with these groups, not that we would lose who our cultures are, not by becoming one that we would jettison who he's created us to be, but our oneness in Christ would transcend through the blood of Christ, drawing us near to Jesus, that is his plan, his love, his affection would supersede all other relationships, Amen. Like, that's massively different. And I hope you didn't hear me say this. I am not saying sameness because the gospel does not call us to sameness. Because usually when that happens, whatever is the dominant culture is saying, it doesn't matter who you are. Just be one of us. That's not what he's saying. He goes, it matters because he created you that way, that he allowed you to be raised that way. That good or bad, that he sovereignly allowed or caused all things for our good and his glory to be the people that we are, he's just saying, let, don't let those things get in the way of oneness. So oneness is not sameness, but it has to be centered, tethered, um, fueled through the blood of Christ, which draws us near to him. That, that Paul is having this issue of people in a service together. I mean, you can imagine that. We will complain over the type of songs that we sing or, you know, how far we have to drive or, or, or the mic that's annoying my ear, like whatever it is, right? But he's saying, no, 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 that ultimately there's sacrifice for us to be together. There's sacrifice for us to worship together. There's sacrifice in Christ and the continued sacrifice for those who follow Christ who have been brought near to him by his blood. Amen? Well, Paul continues here. He says, for he himself, he is himself our peace, who has made, who has made us both 
one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God by, in, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him we, have, we both have access and one spirit to the Father. So, so here's what I'm saying here. There literally was a dividing wall, right? Like there was a dividing wall in the temple in which people would worship. And the way the order went, it was like priests and Jewish men and then like women and then like Gentiles, right? And the dividing wall um, that they found recently, recently in the last hundred years, an inscription of what it read on it. And I have the quote here, which is interesting to me. It says, no outsider shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary and whoever is caught will only have himself to blame for the ensuing death. And Paul uses that picture of going, there used to be a temple we'd worship at, but now Christ becomes our temple. There used to be a place in which we'd have to gather to meet Christ, but now he meets us in the spirit. There used to be a separation and a literal divide, but now Christ has broken down those barriers. The work of Christ in breaking down that barriers means that now those of us who are in Christ, that we do whatever we can in selfless, sacrificial love in response to the good news in which he has given us to do the same to the people around us. That he says that he's come now and he's preached peace, that means good news and shalom, to those who are far because they didn't get it. But Paul doesn't just assume the Jewish men and women got it either, that he has to come and also preach that same peace in the gospel that they may get it, that nobody truly gets it. Unless you are in Christ and in the gospel, now it begins to redefine every other relationship. And what Paul continues to say here, um, he says in verse 18, that through him we both have access and one spirit um, to the Father. We're going to come back in touch with that. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So let's talk some implications here. Paul is building up, and he's going to continue in Ephesians and saying, this is what the church looks like. I think Paul would actually argue that if we're, if we're not seeking relationships across the other sides of the track in a collective community, then we may not actually be living deeply into the gospel. Hear me. I'm not saying that the gospel is about race. It's not. It is, it is about the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus, but the implications have to do with race. And not just race, preferences, political parties, places you go or you don't go, people who you think, you, in your own mind, they're just irredeemable. That, that, that Christ is constantly calling us to live on the mission that he continued. And you have to think about who are those people and where are those places that I know I'm uncomfortable with, right? I was meeting with a friend of mine. He's a counselor, godly guy, and we're getting coffee the other day and, uh, and our church is growing in our diversity, and it's, it's been really beautiful. We're predominantly uh, white. And um, he says to me, he's a white male, and he says, you know, the other day we had this, we had this gathering that we call First Wednesdays, and he's, I'm sitting around the table, and there, there were these two black guys next to me, and I, oh, yeah, yeah, and I told them their names. He goes, yeah. And he goes, and I sat down, and then they kicked it out to the table, like, hey, I have this discussion around your table. And he goes, and I realized, as I was just sitting there, I'm going, I don't know how to start a conversation with someone black. 
And I'm like, what about me? And he goes, you've always started the conversation with me, and so I've gotten to know you, and, and I know who you are, and we spent time together, and so it's, 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 it's a, you know, I can do it. And I said, well, maybe you should get to know them, go figure, um, and, and build a relationship with them, and listen, and maybe don't start the conversation with, hey, you're black, Ricardo told me to meet with you. Uh, <laughs> right? But it was just one of those things where we can't, we can't worship with and display the gospel if we don't know one another. And I'm going to be honest with you. If I were talking to my church, I'd say the same thing. It's easy to get in rows and go, yeah, there's a person sitting next to me that lives in this neighborhood. There's a per-. But it's hard to get in circles, like when you actually let them into your life. Um, what I mean by that is our younger culture, like we're millennials, which what millennial likes to be called millennial, um, is we will say things like, oh, my community is diverse. You know, I got a refugee family living over here, and I got, you know, a poor family over here. This guy over here is a gangster. And, like, we'll say that, but it's like, okay, have they been to your house for food? And you know you're really in relationship when they invite you over for food, right? Because it's one thing to say, I walk past them. I'm in class with them. I work with them, them, (laughs) right? As opposed to saying, like, I'm in genuine relationship, embodying the, the work and the ministry and the mission of Jesus Christ. So, so what does that look like? Like if God's called us to that, what does that look like? And I just got a few postures for us to think about because I can't tell you how to do it. You guys got to work this out in the context of your life. The first one here is presence. Presence matters, right? And when you take the implication, just going, be around people. Like you just have to be around people and not just around them in the sense that like you work in a cubicle next to them. Like you got to be present in their lives. You got to listen. So one of the reasons why the few minorities that are in our church, we, we talk about how we, how we um, navigate as leaders and pastors is we have a, a lead pastor. So I'm the lead pastor of our congregation. We have multiple ones. It's confusing. I'm not even going to try to explain it. Um, but Tyler, who's our lead pastor, what I said is what Tyler has done for us is amazing, and the reason why we stick is we feel called, but the reason why we even got there is that dude knows how to listen. He's a white kid from Inglewood, Colorado, which is the exact opposite of Inglewood, California, right? <laughs> right? And, and, and I mean, like, rich, sport. I mean, just, just like not what we'd expect, yet most like minority leaders in the city, that's what we go to him. He has an ability to listen, and what he does is he asks really good questions, there's no assumptions, and he listens. There's something about just being present. Like, I don't know what I don't know. People are dying to tell you who they are, right? They're di- I mean, people are, tell me about yourself. I don't know, I'll tell you, what do you want to know? I don't know, everything. Just let them tell you and listen. Don't make any conclusions. Come back again and learn more. Come back again and learn more. It takes time. It takes time. I've been married to my wife for almost 10 years, and she would say, man, I think I'm starting to get it. And I think I'm starting to get her. Because we couldn't be more opposites, not just because she's white and I'm black. I mean, like, our families are just massively different, right? Like, if you're in a car and you're driving from, from the, from, you know, you're driving from Culver City just to Santa Monica, her car is, her parents, you know, we're going to be car with her family. They're going to be quiet. They're going to say, how long is it going to take? What are we going to do when we get there? Do they know we're coming? It's, like, very planned and organized. My family is like, we didn't even tell them we're coming. Everybody's talking at the same time. And she didn't get it. She was like, when I met you, I thought, this is a dominant personality. And then I met your family. I'm like, everybody has a dominant personality. <laughs> My girl, this is how we get down. Um, but one of the things she began to learn was she used to say things like, my family would leave California and come to Arizona. It's like a five, six-hour drive. And they'd be like, hey, we're on our way. And she goes, they're not even going to ask if they can come. They're not even going to, what if we weren't here? I'm like, Holly, that's just how, that's just how, we, that's just how we do it. Like, you know? And she's not right. And she'd always say that. 
What she would say now is, what I realize is right has become what I think is right, as opposed to that's different, right? And you don't have to be different ethnicities for that, right? Those of you guys who are married be like, man, see, he's telling you the same thing I've been telling you, right? <laughs> and we're both white. <laughs> so presence. Presence is being with people. The second one, and I think this is huge, is power. As followers of Christ, we don't understand power. Like, we don't understand the dynamics of power very well. Um, but we need to lose it um, and or use it in a way that builds up the other. Here's what I mean. Influence, power, whatever you want to talk about it, privilege, we have it. At some level, we have it. And we show that we've had it by the way we bellyache over who becomes president or not. The way we bellyache when we don't get what we want. The church historically has never gotten what it's wanted, and yet it's grown. The church in itself has never been accepted by culture, and yet God has added to their number. The church in itself has never had the privilege to say what they wanted. They, already, they knew who they were because they received it all in Christ. And so when we think about that and we think about relationships, you have to give up something. You don't give up who you are in Christ. To the Jew, they had to give up the fact that that wall had to go. They had to give the fact that while they had taught their good Jewish kids, now in Christ, we don't eat that sort of meat, and yet their friends, they're going to spend the night at their friend's house, and they're going to be eating pork rinds. They're like, uh-oh, right? They had to know that there were things to give up. And to the Gentile, they had to give up some things as well in order that they may be one. So you got to find what that is. So think about this, just practically. I don't know a whole lot about your neighborhood tables. It's going, <clears throat> who can I invite here that's going to make us uncomfortable, <laughs> right? Like, it's going to be very uncomfortable for us. Who can I find? There's, I, you know, there's somebody I know I'm going to invite to this. It's going to make us very uncomfortable. It's going to change things. It's going to change things significantly. And so understanding power, and that is just giving it up in such a way that you can use it to edify and to build up somebody else. And lastly, it's patience. Living out the implications of the gospel in any area, whether it's racially, um, <clears throat> whether it's culturally, it just takes patience. I just think that we are such an instant gratification culture. <laughs> this is hilarious. Lorenzo was driving me back to the hotel uh, this morning, and there was this huge sign by the mall, by the freeway, wherever we were. The mall, but that one mall by the freeway in LA. <laughs> uh, I don't know what mall it was. And, uh, and it's this huge sign that says, instant gratification, next left. <laughs> and it's like, and, you know, everyone's like, yes, that's what I'm looking for. Um, we are, but, but the reality of it is, if you just read the Bible in itself, you realize, like, God is not fast at working. He's like, Abraham, I'm going to give you a family and I'm going to save the world. And it's like, Jesus, it's been a long time. And he's like, I'm on the way. <laughs> I'm on the 405. <laughs> so, so there's, like, it's just patience. Like, you can't, it's, you will never get there by guilt. Never. You'll burn out. That's not, the mission of God is never driven by guilt. It's always by grace. And you'll never get there over the night. All you got to do is patiently through and in the response to the gospel Take one step at a time. And, and let me leave you with this. Um, verse 18 is it. For through him we both have access, access to one spirit through the Father. Mission in itself, the gospel mission, if it's truly going to be lasting and sustaining, it has to be fueled not by working for the approval of your pastors, not by working for the approval of your brothers and sisters in Christ, not by working for approval of the culture around us, but it's working from the approval and acceptance that you already have in the Father. 
that you have a father that we have access to who's a good father. Like it drives you, it drives the church to understand through Christ we have an awesome father. Like he's not the father at the soccer game who's constantly yelling at his kid, get your foot here, do that, go faster, do what I taught you to do. You know that dad, you're like, gosh, I'm glad that dad's not my dad, right? Like that kid hates his dad, he doesn't know it. Okay, dad, and he's flipping him off, you know. He's not the dad who's not at the game, right? He's not the dad who's like, my kid's the best player. Like, in fact, we're the worst player on the team. Like, we're that kid. And yet he's the dad who's like, yeah, number 37, that's my kid. He's not even on the field. I know, but I love him, right? Like, there's never a moment where God himself is like, I'm going to love you more when you make that relationship with that person down the hall. Like, he's never going to go, I'm going to love you more when you, store, when you score the goal, which means you invite the right people in your community, you're leading the Jesus, and now your friend group and your Facebook group is far more eclectic than it used to be. Now I'm going to stand up and say, good, faithful, servant, well done. Because if we are truly in Christ, as Paul is saying, if we are truly been wrapped up in him, if we're truly seated in the heaven, that means what is said of Christ by the Father is said of us. And so the picture there. Is Jesus being baptized, right? He just goes underwater and comes out, which some of you guys are going to do that next week. And what does the father say? It says he speaks and he says, this is my son and who I'm well pleased. Like he didn't do anything. Exactly. He's just pleased with them. When God speaks to the Israelites in Deuteronomy, he says, I didn't choose you because you were more in number. I didn't choose you because you can do this or that. He goes, I didn't do that. He goes, I loved you because I loved you. When you realize that the father has been loving the son for all eternity, there never was a moment where the father, like he, what he's best at doing is not being a judge or a creator. He's best at doing what he's done for all eternity past. And that is a father loving his son. And what Paul is saying is through the gospel, Jew and Gentile, white and black, rich and poor, he's given us access to that love. And that's a love that fuels and motivates that we don't have to earn this acceptance. All we need to do is accept his acceptance of us. And when we do that, now we're able to be patient, to be present with people, and ultimately to understand the power in which we need is not a power in which we can gain, but it's a power that only comes from the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.